Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. So Chris, you've been to Hawaii, right? I have. Um, specifically went just last October to the Big Island for uh, honeymoon, as most people know it, it's right vacation and, and honeymoon, but there obviously are a lot of people that live there, have really deep connections there. And I think that's probably the biggest takeaway that I had from going out there was just uh, what a remarkable place it was. And especially thinking about the people who do live there full time, who call it their home for generations, or maybe have just decided to move out there. What a really incredible place it is that just it feels so different in, in, in many ways than kind of the day-to-day life that I'm used to in, in Albuquerque and then also from my upbringing over in uh, Corvallis, Oregon. A incredibly beautiful place. Didn't go to Maui, but went to the Big Island and a lot of amazing culture and history there for sure. Yeah, it's really one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been to. Experiencing a place like Hawaii is just that. It's an experience and it's a really special thing. Something that photos I find can't really do justice when you try to explain to people who haven't been there yet, you know, the culture, the beautiful sunsets, the waters. And today we are talking about one of those Hawaiian islands, Maui specifically, and Lahaina has been at the forefront of news headlines since August 8th, when it was swept by one of the country's deadliest wildfires in a century. So the deadly fire started in Lahaina as a brush fire from what we understand, what was initially maybe a a downed power line. It quickly grew out of control with hurricane-like winds fanning that fire into a densely populated part of the sort of northwest coast of the island where so many people didn't see the danger coming until it was too late. As of this recording, there have been reports that more than 100 people were killed in that wildfire. Hundreds are still unaccounted for. There's thousands of acres that are left scorched and more than 2,200 structures were damaged in that wildfire, most of which were residential. Wildfires are something we tend to cover quite a bit here in New Mexico, living in a desert and dry climate where last year's high winds fanned the flames of one of the state's most destructive wildfires, the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire here. But this wildfire in Lahaina has left part of the islands almost looking like a war zone. There's there's nothing left, it seems, except for a few standing pieces of the structures that were there. So much destruction and loss have happened there. And since August 8th, there have been a lot of efforts, though, from locals and people across the country coming to the aid on the island. Yeah, today we're talking to a couple people who've been part of those efforts. First, Jess Orr, you're here with us today from Albuquerque. Hello. Hi. And you lived in Maui for three years during the pandemic to help plant a church there. Yes. So first, tell us about your experience living on the island. What was it like living in Maui? Well, we've talked already about how beautiful it is, but Hawaiian life is a little bit different than a lot of people might think it is. I remember one time I posted a picture of the beach and someone from Albuquerque messaged me and was like, it's so crazy to think that that's your life now. And I told him I haven't been to the beach in over two and a half months because I've been working because the nature of the island is that to stay living there, you have to work multiple jobs. Right. And then during the pandemic, if you had a job, you were working extra. And so I was working. I worked at Starbucks and I was working 70 hours a week. Wow. And so I could see the beach from 
my kitchen window. But other than that, I didn't get to go go to the beach a whole lot. Yeah, you realize that as well, even though there are just the beautiful surroundings, it doesn't necessarily mean that you always have that time to go and enjoy it uh, because, yeah, it does come at a cost, you know, and it's far different than what many of us know from the vacation element where you've already sort of made your mind up that you're not working for those days or that chunk of time. So a big difference there. When you heard about the wildfire in Lahaina, what was your initial reaction? So I had been off of social media for three months, and that's where I normally get my information about what's going on on Maui. And so I was at work and someone walked in and was like, do you still have friends on Maui? And I said, yes. And he said, have you checked on them? And I was like, why? And so that was on Wednesday morning. And I spent the rest of the day on the phone trying to call people, get in contact with them, make sure that everyone that I love so dearly was okay. And it was hard because there was like no cell reception for a lot of them. And then when I did get a hold of anyone, they couldn't get a hold of other people. So they're like, well, have you talked to this person? Have you talked to this person? Have you seen on the news? Can you check and see if you see my house? Is my house okay? And um, there was one of my old baristas that I talked to. Um, she was like, I finally got some service by the beach. And she was asking me, where do I get food and water? I grabbed one water bottle from my house and that's all I have. And I don't know where to go. And I can't look anything up online. Like I, I just feel stuck and I'm with my family and we're sharing this one water bottle. Like, what do I do? And so it was really devastating to already, like before even seeing any pictures or anything, because there was there were no pictures being posted because no one had any service. And so it was just really scary not knowing if anyone, I, I had no idea who was okay and who wasn't and um, feeling their devastation already and them having the same fear I did was, it was really hard to not be there with them. Like I felt like I should be. And just to be clear as well, you know, you lived on Maui. We know Maui's got quite a range of land on uh, different little communities here and there. You did live near Lahaina or in Lahaina. I lived Lahaina. in Lahaina. My old house burned down. My roommates still lived there. Wow. So in the hours and days that followed when you did start to see the devastation and, and kind of understand how massive the destruction was, what was your next step? I know you helped raise funds and supplies. Tell us a little bit about that. So I had been out of work for a while and I just really felt this overwhelming, not even like desire, but need to be there to support my community. And I know that they all need money, but they need so much more than that too. They need connection. They need comfort. And, um, they're my people, you know, those are the people I went through a traumatic experience with them before in the pandemic. So I almost feel, even though I grew up in Albuquerque, I almost feel like they're my community more than my community here in Albuquerque. And so my pastor's wife had called me and she asked me if I was going and I had already been thinking about it all day. And I was like, I can't make this happen. And so she just, she prayed over me and like spoke over it. Like it was going to happen. Like I was going to be there. And so I did everything I could to fundraise to be there. I asked people to support me to get out there. I needed more than just like my plane ticket. I was taking a week off of work unexpected and I hadn't been saving for it because I'd only been in my new job for a month. And people just rallied around that so much that I ended up by the time I left on Monday. So I started fundraising on Thursday and by Monday I already had 2000 extra dollars that I got to spend on people on Maui that I got to use to help take care of them and support them. I asked my uh, Maui community what they needed. And one of my friends reached out to me and she said, I need size seven girls clothes. And I know that the island was inundated with clothing, but the problem was that they were sending it all to shelters and the people that didn't check into shelters didn't have access to the clothing. And then there was no one 
in the places that didn't have that didn't you didn't have to check in there was no one to organize all the clothing and so it was just like piles and piles of clothing which is not helpful if you can't find what you need you know and so she said my daughter grabbed one outfit she sent her daughter to pack and they they leave a lot you know there's tsunami warnings and stuff and so they're used to like packing up but they always go home and so her daughter just went in her room and packed one one outfit mm-hmm. she she was they were laughing about it when i was with them she was like, yeah, I sent her to pack and she came out and then we found out our house burned down and she said, mom, I have one clothes. <laughs> How old is she? She's seven. Oh man. So wow. they evacuated. They did. During the wildfire yes. and made it. Okay. Yeah. And is this part of your, your church friends in Maui or? No, it's my Starbucks community. So my church friends on Maui have a very big support system here in Albuquerque because it's citizen church. And so they talked about all of them and stuff. So my goal in all of my fundraising was to focus on people that I knew didn't have that church community. And so it was largely my Starbucks partners and customers that I was trying to fundraise for. Wow. How much did you bring ultimately? Including what I needed to cover my costs, I've raised $6,000. And were you bringing supplies in your uh, bags there as well? Yeah. So when I moved back, I flew Southwest and you can take totes. You just have to hole punch them and then zip tie them shut. And I still had those. And so I did, that was really convenient for me because this trip happened so fast, like four days later I was going, you know? And so I, I just asked people for donations. I asked for some women's clothing as well, because I had my two, I have two friends that are single moms and they're the ones that needed the most help. And so people dropped clothes off at my house the night before I left and like hairbrushes and bobby pins and then I ended up picking up some stuffed animals for their kids while I was out there as well. And so I was just able to, I gave them each a totes worth worth of stuff that they were able to take home to their families. What was it like going back and seeing the devastation and also, you know, connecting with your friends and being able to deliver those supplies? It felt really good to be able to contribute something. When a tragedy like that happens, you just don't know what to do at first. You know, you're like, I want to help, but like, what, what do I do? And so delivering those things to them and seeing how much it meant to them was really incredible. But also I have several friends who reached out to me when I had posted about those two moms specifically, and they asked to donate to them specifically. And so being able to bless them that way, because now they have to find new housing and stuff, you know, on an island that already has a housing shortage for locals. It was just really incredible to be able to hug them and see them just like take a little deep breath and feel like some weight was lifted off their shoulders, you know? Yeah. You go out there and you're thinking about who you're seeing. They're your people very much, you were, you were saying. Friends that you made over a really trying time during the pandemic. And by no exaggeration, it sounds like they really did lose everything. You, you help them out for a little bit, but they're going to need some more help. Very much in the vein of some of the people we've seen lose everything here in the wildfires that happened last season, whether it was the McBride fire near Ruidoso, but also the Hermit's Peak Calf Canyon fire up in northern New Mexico. Moving forward, you know, is, is this something that you're maybe thinking about, concerned about just how much more it is going to be to be able to keep these folks on their feet because of the fact that I think you also mentioned that, you know, if you're local, you're, you're working really hard. It is not easy to survive on an island that has just as much tourism and costs are as high as it is. Yeah. So most of my friends will never be able to afford to own property on Maui. So most of them are renting their homes, which means that they don't get a whole lot in return for what they lost. 
but starting over still costs so much. And a lot of their jobs burn down as well, especially because Lahaina town largely works like on front street and in the, in the town, you know, and then even the things that didn't burn down, like my old Starbucks did not, but everything around it is gone. So how long will it be before it's open again, you know, or even safe. And so what they're going to need the most is just finances. I'm still keeping my GoFundMe opening open. And so I'm planning to continue as much as I can raising money for them. But I think the best thing that anyone can do at this point is just give. Mm-hmm. Where are your friends, the single moms, where are they staying right now? I have one staying in Kihei, um, which is South Maui, and then one staying in Wailuku, which is Central Maui. One of them is staying in some housing that was just opened up. She's staying with 14 other people in the house. And then um, the one in Kihei is staying with her kid's dad's family. Got it. Okay. Were you able to see your old house in Lahaina? I was not. It was blocked off, but I did see my old neighborhood, which is crazy because normally it's so green that you can't really see back to it. But driving by it was very emotional. It was very hard. I only spent my last day in Lahaina because when I was out there, the roads were closed to Lahaina unless you're local and I don't have a Hawaii driver's license. And so I couldn't get out there at first. So I spent my time serving in town. There was a church that was collecting donations. And so I was sorting through them and helping them with that day in and day out. And then in the evenings, I would meet with people who who I know and love. I got to have those connections, but it was my last day in Lahaina that was definitely the hardest, like actually seeing the destruction. Can you describe for us what it looked like compared to what it was when you lived there? Yeah, so it was just, devoid of color and felt lifeless. I just like, I don't have words for, I've never felt anything that devastating before. And knowing that not only a place that I called home and was special to me is gone, but so many of my friends lived in my neighborhood. It was the biggest residential part of Lahaina. Further up north is mostly tourists and vacation rentals. It's the resorts and stuff. And so it was, it was definitely the homes and knowing that my friends have nothing to come back to. It's just a, a massive sea change for, for life in that part of the island. And yeah, that, that is, I think to your point, you spoke a little bit to this, it's, it's going to be a long lasting thing that nobody really knows when may come back to normal. Do you see yourself going back out there to try to do more of this kind of aid? Yeah, I definitely do. I don't know when, because again, I'm not super financially stable at the moment. And so it's expensive to go out there, but I'm going to do everything I can to help. And while I can't go, I'm going to find creative ways to help from home too. What is your hope for the people of Maui now as they move forward? My hope is that they all, they all find a way to stay because already they're talking about how they have to move away from the island. And that happened so much during the pandemic already when people didn't have the finances to stay because all the resorts were closed and stuff. And so we lost a large part of our community. But with the housing shortage and now so many homes being gone, I just worry about the people who were born and raised there, who that is their culture. Like it, they were, they are Hawaiian or they, their families have been there for generations. You know, it's, I'm, I'm really just hoping and praying that God opens doors for them to stay, to find a way to be with their community. How is your church doing there, the one that you helped plant? They're doing really great. They didn't burn. They are there for, further west on Maui than all the devastation. And so they have been teaming up with a nonprofit called Mercy Chefs. 
and they provide meals three times a day, warm meals for everybody. And so they, and then they don't just provide them at the church. They take them into the community, like up to the parts above the, the Lahaina bypass where the homes didn't burn down, but are still part of that community. So we talked about the two single moms that, you know, did you know anyone, you know, who, who lost more than just their property in the wildfire? My friend Luce, she's from my church there. She, her story is honestly just heartbreaking. So one of the, one of the problems with the fire is that, so the winds were so bad before it started that the power went out in all of Lahaina and it was supposed to be the first day of school. And so the kids were at home and their parents still had to go to work because it was an unexpected day at home. Oh my gosh. And so my friend Luz, her son was at home. He was 14. And so he was just enjoying his extra last day of summer, you know, and she and her, her son and her, her other son and her husband were working about a mile away and they found out that the fires were happening. And so she started, they drove as fast as they could to get over there, but there was a certain point where they couldn't drive anymore because there were cars blocking the road. And so she got out and started running to her house and there were people trying to stop her and telling her that it's not safe, that she needs to turn around. And then when she got to the end of her street, there was a police barricade and she doesn't speak any English. And so there was a language barrier and she kept saying, my son, my son, you know, and they told her she couldn't go. So she dropped to her knees and she was begging them to let her through and they said no. And so she pushed her way through them and ran anyway. And it was so hot that her sandals melted on her feet. And she realized shortly that she wasn't going to be able to get to her house. And so the community came around her and they, they encouraged her to look at the shelters, the places where people had been, the places where people had been housing and stuff. And so they spent They spent a day or so looking around and then some of his friends snuck up to their house and they found his corpse wrapped around their dog. Oh my God. His um, 15th birthday was Sunday. So she had been planning a quinceanera and now instead he's gone. (laughs) She's such an incredible woman. I um, didn't get to see her while I was at the church, but someone told me that she might be at a park where they were doing relief stuff. And so I drove to that park and I just walked around looking for her. And um, it was like four days, five days after. And she had still been doing news interview after news interview. And people are just like making her relive her trauma over and over and over. And when I saw her, she ran up and gave me a hug and she prayed over me and spoke encouragement over me and thanked me for being there. And I just think about like how in the midst of such great loss, she's still such a light, which is what her name means. So it's so fitting. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, just so much destruction and devastation and loss. It's really hard to imagine, but we appreciate you sharing your story and your friends' stories with us. Jess, thank you. Thank you. American Red Cross, this is Laura. Hi, Laura. It's Gabrielle Burkhart with KRQE in Albuquerque. Is this a good time? Uh, yes. Are we doing FaceTime or are we just talking? Just talking over the phone. We can hear you, okay? Oh. Can, can you hear us? Okay. Yes, I can. Thank you. We're back. It is noon New Mexico time right now. 
That means it's 8 a.m. in Maui. And with us on the line as she starts her day is Laura King. She is the Regional Disaster Workforce Engagement Manager for the American Red Cross, specifically in the regions of Arizona and New Mexico. Laura, thanks for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me. You're welcome, and, and we're glad to speak to you. What day is this for you in Maui with the Red Cross? I believe I'm on day 11. The days are kind of mixing together, but I think I'm on uh, day 11. And how long are these days for you? We pretty much start around 530, um, have travel time to get to our command center. So starting at the command center, typically at seven in the morning and going to, I would say seven at night. And then after that, when we travel back to our lodging locations, we typically are, are still working and answering calls and working on our laptops. Laura, can you describe for us, what does it look like around you when you're volunteering? What does it look like there? Okay, so I'm um, assigned to our command center, which is almost like an emergency operations center that you would see in um, other disaster events, but this is strictly Red Cross volunteers in the workforce. And we are located inside a outdoor shopping mall that basically is in a vacant Forever 21 retail store. And we have about a hundred of our workforce working out of that command center and utilizing all the space. We're in there pretty crowded on tables, folding tables, chairs, and uh, we're even using the dressing rooms as workstations. But we have many different departments, you know, from where I'm working is the workforce locations. So then there's also logistics, transportation, our information and um, planning people. We have technology people. I mean, we have a, an array of specialized departments that are the center of sending out the workforce and and keeping the operation going. And where exactly are you? We know Lahaina is kind of on the western part of the island. We're in the north side of Maui and I can see like rolling hills, beautiful mountains, but on the other side to the west side is um, Lahaina where all the devastation occurred. I'm staying in Lahaina um, on the outskirts of the town, but I have a 40-minute drive to get to the command center. What was your initial reaction when you first arrived out there and getting to see some of what's happening out there? Well, I I would tell you that first it took days before I even saw it working in our or moving our lodging locations. And the the first few days are like organized chaos. So the only evidence that I saw that, you know, something was going on, obviously, were the people that were wa- that walk around here and, and that are sharing their stories with us and that are, have been displaced by the event. But I did see helicopters go over that were holding the water tanks, and they were still putting out hot spots on the mountains. So, you know, the wildfires have not been completely contained even as of today. So it's mostly them working on those hot spots. They have them under, you know, control, so to speak. There's a lot of fire emergency personnel watching those, those mountains. So my initial reaction when I actually saw the town of Lahaina 
just complete devastation. We're we're kind of away from TV and and radio because we you know where we are in just the hours that we're working getting our mission done. So to see it firsthand is, um, and I've worked a lot of disasters. It's on a scale that's just not even imaginable. You know, immediately it's surreal. It's devastating. It's sad. Trigger points for me personally were just seeing the the vacant cars that were there and just, you know, it looked like miles and miles of ashes and just, you know, burnt buildings and structures. And I've been to quite a few disaster events and especially like tornadoes. You know, to me, the immediate difference, the tornadoes tend to just literally obliterate everything in its sight and it's just flat. Here, it's not flat. It's just parts of buildings and and just the blackness, the gray, and even the smells. And there's a lot of National Guard protecting the area. So you can't just roam and, and go into different areas. It's blocked off and it's secured by whether it's National Guard or law enforcement. The environment here with the Hawaiian culture is you know, you need to respect their land and and they don't want a lot of people, you know, in it unless they absolutely have to be there for the recovery process. Right. Have you met any survivors and can you share with us what the locals there have gone through and, and are still going through? Sure. I Every day I talk to many different people that have been displaced. I would tell you that the Hawaiian spirit here is love, compassion, caring. There's a resiliency that they have to look after each other. And they're very strong people. And matter of fact, many of the people have come in and want to help in some way and and just stop in and say, you know, we have been impacted, but we want to, we want to do something to help our own communities. And it's so heartwarming to see that I, you know, I've talked to many um, that also come in and they're not sure where to go for help. And even though we have a lot of communications out there and where people go, I think people are still in shock of what's happening. I talked to a gentleman that when I was getting some coffee and he said he doesn't even, you know, he's just getting up in the morning and doesn't even know what he's going to do with this day. He says his life has just been turned upside down and He's missing friends and, and distant family members. And he said, you know, I'm, I'm just struggling to get through the day. I had um, an elderly woman come in and she couldn't even speak at first because I think she was just in an emotional state where she was in shock. And then, you know, I sat her down. I sat next to her and just started talking to her. And she was clearly had been injured and she had bandaging all over her um, left arm. And I didn't ask anything about it because it was obvious. After, you know, getting some information little bit by little bit, she had just been to the bank next door to close out her brother's bank accounts and they had discovered his body. And it it was really hard for her to talk about it. She just walked in. She just, you know, didn't know. She knew it was the Red Cross that we would be able to help her, but she didn't even know where she needed the help. So we sat with her and we have 
many professionally trained personnel that can deal with grief and, and counseling. And one of the ladies, you know, took her aside and, and talked to her privately and, and just kind of reassured her that Red Cross was there to help her with the emotional support that she needs and, and making sure that she had a safe place to stay. Because when we initially came to the island, that was the biggest need was how do we get all these people into a place that they can rest and, and sleep and be safe and then feed them. And that's where our mission is. And that's what we are trained to do. So that's, you know, that's what we were trying to help her with. And, and people's needs have just been, you know, different. Some do need the sheltering. A lot of them do. But um, others need the emotional support and where to go next. So there's many volunteer organizations and partners that are um, here on the island trying to help the community. And another big partner of ours is FEMA. So it's a good place for the families to start, to start on that road to recovery. We know that that road is going to be a long one. It'll probably be years for things to, to come back together and for people to fully recover or recover as much as they can and rebuild as much as they can from there. How do you see the sort of mission evolving for the Red Cross as the time goes on? Because obviously, as you mentioned, we sort of know that main mission right now is getting people fed, rested, and with some of the daily items that they need. But how do you see the mission evolving over time here? Well, it's actually evolving faster than most of our disaster events due to the magnitude and the scale of this operation. So we've already uh, made some um, adjustments to our mission and working with the governor's office here in Hawaii and other partners. We were doing what we call congregate sheltering where we had people in buildings and they were on cots and there was a lot of people in one area just to get them to safety. So we had many different areas that we were doing that in. And just as of yesterday, we moved out everybody that was in one of those type of shelters into a hotel arrangement. So now we have about six hotels that are set up specifically for the um, survivors. And we have Red Cross state workforces stationed in one of, say, the banquet rooms. We have tables in the lobby. And so we are coordinating getting everyone into one of those rooms that, that they, they have some privacy and they have time to get away from some of that madness going on, but then to be able to talk with the Red Cross people right in that hotel and, and then finding out, we do an intake process where we find out how many people are in their family, the ages, what types of services they need, where do they need help. Some people need different types of assistance. And um, we can even get the medical equipment like walkers and wheelchairs and make sure that they get their medications that they may have lost during the fire. And we also have been helping with doing the registries for missing loved ones and relatives. People lost their cell phones. And so, you know, working up with partners that can provide them with a phone and just anything, even, you know, we're working with the humane, local humane society and there's even a registries set up through those pet partners to locate missing pets, which 
as you know, most of us know, our pets are just as important to us as anything. And, and, and people want to know what has happened to theirs and, and where they are. So, you know, it's just finding out what those needs are and then working together with other partners to make sure we're taking care of them. Our forecast is, you know, this is going to take at least seven to eight months. We know this is, you know, not going to get done any any quicker than that. So we focus on keeping those people in those hotels for that long. If they get out sooner and able to get assistance somewhere, some may choose to relocate off of the island. We're just not going to, um, we're not going to leave until we know they're all taken care of. Laura, how long will you plan on being there? Um, I will be here through the month of August. And then what typically happens with Red Cross, the Red Cross workforce is we rotate people in every, in this operation that we were on three to four week assignments, but then we'll rotate another group in and that's, you know, can relieve the people that have been here so that they can go back and refresh and get energized and, you know, some of the people may come back for another second round since this is a longer operation. It just depends. We have a, a lot of Red Cross volunteers throughout the U.S. that want to help and support this operation. So we will be here as long as we, we're needed. We know there are still hundreds of people that are unaccounted for technically as of this recording. The wildfire we know as well caused massive communications failures with downed power lines and damage to cell service. In talking with people there, do you get a sense that there's still a lot of worry or perhaps is there a lot of hope? What What is the sentiment you're feeling there? I, I think it's both. I think to start off with, they definitely have hope. And I think they see the love and the outpour of generosity from from the Red Cross and other people coming in. The president was here visiting yesterday. So I think that does give them hope. But, you know, very it kicks in. The reality kicks in. They don't have homes to go to. Many of these are multi-generational families that have lived on this island for a long time. And they don't know what the next step is. So I think they're just trying to figure out reality and, and take it one day at a time. But it's going to be really difficult for them. And I, I think um, we can't forget about them. We have to keep them in our thoughts, our prayers, and keep supporting them and being there right next to them for their, their questions. And this type of life is different. It's, it's um, island life and very laid back and casual. So they, they didn't tend to worry about a lot of things. And now they have this horrible burden on them of um, what's coming next and, and, and also just the grieving process. I have talked to several people that are even the guilt that they feel that they're here and pe- some of the people they know are not. And, and why is that? So it's, it's just really tough for them. It's a lot. Yeah. What do you want people back here, we're in, you know, in New Mexico and the Southwest to know or understand about what's going on in Maui? Well, I think the main thing is just being prepared for emergencies in general. Um, A lot of people, you know, don't realize what can happen in their own communities. And and they, they definitely did not expect something like this to happen. So, 
I would, I would, you know, reflect on where you live personally and have evacuation plans, have emergency plans for all different types of emergencies, talk it through with your family members. And then when something like this happens in another area, you know, reach out and, and see what you can do to support that particular event. For us, donating to the Red Cross is huge, making a financial donation. And it goes such a long way for us to be able to provide our services and our mission. And right now, tangible items for the families, like bedding, furniture, and all that, that's not what they really need right now because they don't have any place to put it or, you know, go back to with it. Now, that they will definitely need that down the road, but the immediate need is just safety and feeding and then finding out you know, where their loved ones are and their friends and taking care of them that way. And just, you know, sending, you know, prayers and thoughts, no matter where you live, always taking care of people and looking after them, even if they're not in your community will go a long way. Is there anything else that you'd like to add or how people can help? Supporting the Red Cross would be my number one, you know, ask of others and just get involved in your community. Volunteer work is very uplifting, rewarding. And if you'd like to be a volunteer with Red Cross, certainly call 1-800-RED-CROSS and we can get you involved in your own um, communities. And then when these events happen across the U.S., we can get you trained so that you're, you're able to deploy and help others in need during these horrible times. Laura, thank you for your time. We'll let you get back to it. And certainly thinking of you and the and the community there in Maui. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks again to Jess Orr and Laura King for taking the time to share with us their experience in the relief efforts to help those in Lahaina and Maui right now who are still recovering and will likely be recovering for a long time after the wildfire there. Yeah, again, there are just so many parallels there between I think what some of the families locally are experiencing there in Lahaina to what we saw here in New Mexico last year that we know the, the recovery process as well is uh, extensive. And for a lot of people, it means a big change of what they will do with the rest of their lives potentially based on what they've lost. If you have an idea, feel free to reach out. I'm at chris.mckee at krqe.com and also at TV. And I'm gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. We will also share some links on how you can give if you would like to, to help in those relief efforts. Um, you can find those links in our show notes and on our website, krqe.com slash podcasts. Thank you all for listening. <laughs>